Thank you for listening to the fourth edition of Development Drums, recorded on the 31st of October 2008. And for those of you who like your festivals pagan, happy Halloween. Development Drums aims to give busy people working in development a short update on the latest news, with some stimulating comment from the experts. And there's a lot to talk about this week. I'll be talking to Sheila Page from the Overseas Development Institute about proposals for a new free trade area in Africa. And we'll be looking again at the impact of the financial crisis on developing countries, and we'll ask whether it's a good idea to give a prize for good governance to African leaders. I'm joined today by Shanta Devarajan. Shanta is currently the Chief Economist at the World Bank's Africa region. He's previously been Chief Economist for the South Asia region and for the Human Development Network of the World Bank. And notably, he was the Director for the World Development Report in 2004 on making services work for poor people. He also writes a, an excellent blog on Africa economics and development. Shanta, welcome to Development Drums. Thanks very much, John. Nice to be here. Let's start with the financial crisis and the impact on developing countries. We had rather a gloomy conversation about this in last week's episode, both about the effects of the crisis on foreign aid and on the broader economic effects on developing countries. Shantra, in your blog, you were quite optimistic that aid would be sustained uh, despite the financial crisis. Are you, are you generally sanguine about the effects of the crisis on developing countries? No, I think the, there are some profoundly uh, disturbing effects, uh, but I, I don't think foreign aid is going to be the big driver. I think the biggest effect that I'm concerned about is the uh, shortfall in private capital flows. Uh, private capital flows have been rising in Africa. In fact, it's the fastest rising region in the world. And as we know, since the main effect of the global financial crisis is a, is a contraction in credit, uh, as well as a reduction in the appetite for risk by investors, there are many very good investment projects in Africa that may have to be postponed or even canceled because the private uh, finance that they were expecting is not forthcoming. Uh, so I'm, I'm very concerned on the investment front uh, for, for Africa. Uh, foreign aid is, is, is a concern, uh, but as, you, as we know, the, my only point there is that uh, foreign aid is falling far short of what was promised at Glen Egan's anyway. Uh, about, I think the latest calculation is it's about $20 billion short of the, of the Glen Egan's promises. Uh, so I think we need to make the point that uh, even without a financial crisis, uh, the, the, the donor nations are falling short on their promises. Uh, and I think uh, there may be a cutback in foreign aid, but we need to make the point very clearly that uh, a drastic cutback could be literally a matter of life and death for uh, many Africans, including the two million who are on antiretroviral therapy uh, uh, and relying on aid-financed uh, ART for their, for their lives. So the private flows you're talking about here are primarily investment flows rather than remittances. It's, it, this is investment by banks and international companies in mainly in infrastructure in Africa? Exactly, exactly. And it, how, it, much of, it, how much of that is there in the least developed countries? Are we, uh, is most of that going to the better off countries in sub-Saharan Africa like, like South Africa? A large part is going to South Africa, but it's actually become much more diverse now. Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, uh, Nigeria has, have been recipients of these uh, private capital flows in the last three or four years, which is a significant development. Uh, it traditionally used to go just for just to uh, South Africa, 
Oh, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention Zambia as well. Some of it is, is uh, as a result of uh, mineral, uh, uh, the possibility of mineral exports, but also some of it has gone for the much-needed infrastructure development in sub-Saharan Africa. And what about flows of remittances? Are, yeah. are they, uh, A, have they been a big part of, of private flows to Africa, and B, do you see those being affected by the financial crisis? Yeah, remittances also have been uh, rising quite rapidly. I think the estimates are something of the order of $12 billion a year going to, uh, going to Africa. Um, and they are likely to decline, um, just because unlike previous financial crises, this is one that started in developed countries. Uh, you see, traditionally, remittances have been countercyclical, so that when one of the receiving countries uh, goes into a, a down, downslide, remittances actually increase. But in this case, the source of the remittances is where the crisis is occurring. And so we're a little concerned about that. We've been monitoring uh, the situation, uh, and it, there is there are signs, say, in Kenya of a decline in remittances, and, and uh, the shilling has depreciated almost uh, in response to that. Cape Verde is another country that's uh, suffering a decline in remittances. Uh, but it's too soon to tell by how much this will be uh, affected. And on the on the investment flows, is there something that the international community can do, either the World Bank or perhaps um, the the private financing part of the World Bank, which is called the IFC? Is there something they can do to make sure that those investment flows don't dry up in developing countries? Yes, we are exploring a, a variety of options. Um, uh, one of which uh, is that these these are low-income countries, and, and so they're already receiving aid from the or, or low-interest loans from the World Bank under the IDA uh, uh, program. Uh, so we don't want to uh, we can't add to that because that's that's money that's already been committed. But there's a possibility that if there's a very good investment project, say an infrastructure project in Kenya or Tanzania. Uh, and the private financing has uh, has uh, dried up, that the World Bank could use its uh, hard loan, the IBRD window, which is the, the money that it usually lends to uh, middle-income countries, to finance uh, what, what are called enclave projects. In other words, that's higher interest loans, but just for that project, and the money then is repaid from the returns of that project. So these would have to be projects that have their own revenue. So if it was a right. uh, an electricity project where you could charge the users uh, of electricity, that's right. Uh, uh, or typically have an uh, if they have an export uh, uh, potential as well, or they lead to a better, a higher exports, then those export revenues could be part of the the, the repayment. Uh, but there are ways. I mean, it doesn't have to be direct linked to the project. They, there are ways to earmark. Associated government revenues, or, or uh, from the from the project, to uh, make sure that the, the money is repaid. But again, these are we're exploring these options. We're not, we haven't decided on anything yet. But let's be clear: this would mean that the government in the country concerned would have to an issue would have to issue a guarantee for the loan and would be required to repay it at something like commercial rates at some time in the future. That's right. I mean, what we're doing is replacing what the government would have to pay back for the private capital flows. So private capital flows are also going in at commercial rates, if not higher. Right. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, the the IBRD rates are going to be a little bit lower, about three quarters of a percentage point lower, um, uh, if we are able to do this. 
We talked last week with Nari Woods about the role of the IMF, um, and we were speculating about why it hadn't played much of a role in the crisis. Since then, it's been quite active in providing emergency loans in places like Hungary and Ukraine and I think in Iceland. Um, and it's announced a new facility, the short-term liquidity facility. But that's only going to be available to countries with a very good track record. And one of the conditions for that is that they have low levels of debt. So the international financial system seems to be getting its act together for the emerging economies. Um, but do you think we need something equivalent to enable the poorest countries to um, take out uh, effectively balance of payments support loans? Well, uh, we would need that if we felt that those countries, these poorest countries, are going to suffer uh, a sudden balance of payment shortage. But, uh, you know, part of the reason, because they're not so integrated into the global capital markets, uh, this crisis, for good or ill, is not going to affect the lowest, low-income countries uh, the same way it's affecting these emerging market economies. I mean, th there isn't a whole lot of capital flows other than these private investment flows uh, from, say, Ghana or uh, Kenya to uh, to developed uh, countries, uh, whereas the Eastern European countries, for instance, are very closely integrated with uh, Western Europe. Uh, so the, the, I think it is still necessary to, to be, be ready uh, should some of these countries face uh, a balance of payments crisis. But I think the crisis is not going to come from capital flows or capital flight but rather from some of the commodity price shocks. Uh, so we are also uh, monitoring that situation closely, because as, as you may have observed in that uh, podcast, uh, commodity prices have started falling, particularly oil prices have started falling. And for some, uh, for the oil importing countries, obviously, this is a good thing. It's going to benefit their balance of payment situation. But for oil exporting countries, they're going to lose, and, and the mineral exporting countries, they're going to lose uh, quite a lot of revenues that they would otherwise have gotten. Since we've moved on to commodity prices, should we talk about the food crisis? Um, mm. You may recall that before the, uh, the main collapse in the financial markets, there was a lot of concern about rising food prices around the world. There were riots in places like Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Senegal, and their protesters were burning food stores in West Bengal. And there were lots of explanations for for what had happened, um, some of which now seem quite dated. There was a lot of talk about the effect of the rise of the price of oil, uh, talk about the rapid growth in emerging economies, especially in China, uh, as explanations for why food prices had risen so sharply. And some people were saying that it was because of um, the increasing use of biofuels. Um, but there was a general agreement that the rich countries should do more to... Um, uh, to tackle the food crisis, uh, partly in their own backyard to get rid of agricultural price supports, getting rid of subsidies and tariffs uh, on food, and also to invest more in agricultural technologies to increase food production. Now, we're, we're hearing a lot less today about the food crisis, uh, be, I think mainly because the financial crisis is so much in the news. But here in Ethiopia, for example, there are still about 5 million people in need of assistance and at least another 10 million in the region, in the Horn of Africa. So Shanta, with, with prospects for rapid economic growth around the world receding, oil prices now 
coming down to around $60 a barrel. Is there still a food crisis and should the donors be doing more to tackle it? Well, first of all, as, as you've noted, uh, food prices have started falling. And, and that's not just because of the declining demand, but also that the harvests have been exceptionally good uh, worldwide, including countries like Ukraine and Australia, which are large grain uh, and cereal producers. Uh, so it, 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 we've observed a, a decline in food prices, although Ethiopia is a particular case because they've had their own sort of localized food crisis in addition to the global food crisis, uh, because not only did prices go up, but there was a, a severe food uh, shortage. But it is localized in countries like Ethiopia rather than the, the, the global uh, food crisis. So I think there has been some uh, uh, some abatement of the, of the problem. Uh, in addition, I think it's fair to say that uh, most African countries have responded by accelerating food production in, in different ways, um, namely by making sure that the other constraints to food uh, production, such as infrastructure, fertilizer access, and so on, uh, are relaxed. Uh, this, is a, this is a medium-term project, but they're beginning to register some gains already. Because uh, it would have been a shame that after food prices declining over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, if the one time when food prices went up, that African farmers uh, who had been losing income over these, this period couldn't benefit from it. And I think we've managed to generate a, at least a modicum of a supply response in Africa. And again, the, the, the rains have helped, so the harvest has been good. Um, in order that uh, we can create a virtuous cycle where agricultural growth might begin to take off. With something like uh, 10 countries in Africa have now had 5% agricultural uh, production growth over the last uh, five years. You're saying there's already been a supply response uh, the, that African countries have been able to tackle, what, infrastructure constraints, constraints on ports or railways? or There's been a supply response. Now, as I said, the supply response is due to a variety of factors, one of which is the rains. Um, uh, and rainfall, and that has been extremely good. Uh, but also there have been efforts to try to relax some of the other constraints, including fertilizer, because fertilizer prices have gone up as a result of oil prices going up. Um, and some some African countries have uh, tried to either reduce uh, reduce taxes, uh, import tariffs on fertilizer, or uh, su subsidize it uh, as well. And, um, you know, much of the World Bank's uh, response under this emergency uh, food price response program has been to try to help these countries actually generate that kind of supply response. This is the New Deal on the global food policy, is it, which is supposed to provide short-term help through safety nets for the vulnerable, medium-term supply responses, and longer-term working on things like trade to reduce exactly. trade barriers. And, and we are accelerating our lending in agriculture. I think the plan is to lend up to about a billion dollars in, in agriculture to Africa over the next year, year or two. And is that program and, and the rest of the donor response so far an adequate response to the challenge of food prices? It, it's striking to me that uh, we became interested in this when donor countries saw prices rising in their own supermarkets. Their own consumers were having to pay more for food and we're beginning to complain about it, and suddenly the donors took an interest in agricultural production, which arguably they've neglected for a number of years. Well, um, 
No, I think uh, there's a variety of factors. Um, you know, I mean, even before the uh, prices started rising in the supermarkets here, uh, prices were rising in, in Maputo and uh, Ouagadougou, and people were riding in the streets. And that actually, I think, was much more of a wake-up call uh, than noticing uh, your uh, bread uh, prices going up in, in Washington or London. Um, uh, but on the other hand, uh, I think there's also been a concern about uh, declining agricultural productivity or stagnant agricultural productivity in, in Africa for a long time. In the World Development Report uh, of last year, 2000, well, 2008, but it came out last year, um, identified that as you know that agricultural productivity can be one of the most powerful uh, weapons in the fight against poverty, and if we could just accelerate agricultural productivity growth in Africa, it would do something like four or five times as much as the general uh, economic growth for, for reducing uh, poverty, for the obvious reason that 70-80% of the poor get their income from agriculture in, in Africa. So overall you're, overall you're optimistic about the food crisis and the response to it. But I'm detecting quite a bit of pessimism in the overall picture for developing countries as a result of the global economic slowdown that's now expected following the financial crisis. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Although, I, again, coming back to the financial crisis, I would say that um, while I'm pessimistic or I'm concerned about some of the, the warning signs in Africa, um, you know, Africa, Africa's growth uh, will probably be less reduced than that of other uh, countries, uh, other regions. Uh, we're, we're in the process of uh, recalibrating our growth forecast for, uh, for 2008 as well as 2009, and I think that the original forecast, which is about 6.1 or 2% of 6.2% uh, growth, will probably be reduced by about half a percentage point to about 5.7 or so. Whereas in other regions, like as in Eastern Europe or even in Asia, uh, they're reducing the growth forecast by about one to one and a half percentage points. So ironically, uh, because of Africa's uh, lack of uh, integration in uh, with global capital markets, they may actually suffer less in this particular financial crisis. Um, but they will they will suffer uh, somewhat. Uh, let me just mention one other point which didn't come up in the financial crisis, which is that quite independently of the financial crisis, there are several African countries that are facing macroeconomic imbalances, uh, Ethiopia being uh, perhaps the, one of the more important ones with inflation, as you probably know, uh, uh, hitting about 60%, uh, and uh, Ghana's fiscal deficit is about 10% of GDP, South Africa's current account deficit is close to 8% of GDP, these are serious macroeconomic imbalances. As I said, not they were not caused by the financial crisis, but they need to be addressed, and they're very important to avoid a hard landing. I mean, the, thing, the one thing we've learned from macroeconomic uh, imbalances is that the longer you postpone adjusting them, the harder is the landing. And what kind of measures will developing countries need to take to adjust... It, uh, is this a prescription of the the 1980s structural adjustment policy, or has thinking moved on now about how a 
a country would adjust to, for example, the inflation rate of 60% that we have here in Ethiopia? Well, I, I think some of the basic macroeconomic principles of the 1980s are, are still appropriate. Um, but I think we also need to do two things. One is the same, you don't apply the same policy across the board. Um, and also, um, uh, look at the cause of the, uh, of the problem and try to address it at its source. So, for instance, in, in the Ethiopian case, you know, some significant part of that inflation uh, is caused by uh, rising food and oil prices. So, to the extent that those are now abating, there will be some automatic adjustment. But some of that is probably due to monetary expansion. Um, and so there may need to be some monetary contraction, so right, right, raising interest rates, which I, I gather the Ethiopian authorities have already uh, started doing. Um, similarly, in uh, South Africa, there will probably, if the current account deficit, which by the way was financed almost exclusively by private capital flows, so if the current account deficit has to be reduced because these private capital flows have declined and there isn't that much domestic uh, uh, or other sources of, of financing, um, then the, the RAND would have to depreciate. And then, in fact, again, that's already started. The RAND has depreciated about 20% over the last uh, two months. Um, so those kinds of adjustments really have to take place. I mean, I'm afraid that you know some macroeconomic principles just just don't go away. <laughs> we, we're, we're faced with these... Uh, that, Money supply still has an effect on inflation. That the real exchange rate does have an effect on the current account, and vice versa. Uh, fiscal deficits do uh, lead to uh, higher, either higher interest rates or higher inflation or um, uh, reduced growth. On the 20th of October, the Mo Ibrahim Prize for Achievement in African Leadership was awarded to Festus Mohai, the former president of Botswana. This is the largest prize in the world, consisting of $5 million over 10 years, and then $200,000 a year for life after that. The prize is awarded to a democratically elected head of state from a country in sub-Saharan Africa who has served their term in office. Chanta, do you think President Mohai deserved this award? Oh, I think definitely uh, he, he deserves the award. Um, the, the point is, of course, uh, I, I think as some people have, have said, uh, this award is not considered to be an incentive for uh, uh, African leaders to, to leave office and uh, collect, the, collect the prize as much as a way of giving uh, recognition and high profile to the issue of governance of good governance uh, in Africa. And I think Ibrahim um, should be congratulated for having uh, put good governance on the map with a highly visible, high-profile high award. Um, and I think the way in which uh, the, award, the award winners are chosen with an impeccable uh, board of uh, uh, selectors uh, get, you know, has, has really kept it uh, at, a, at, a, uh, at the right uh, level to the profile it deserves. Right, Mo Ibrahim um, has said that his intention is to draw attention to good leaders in Africa. He said that he wants to hear people say, who is Festus Mohai? Like last year, people said, who is Chisano? Um, okay. Referring to the 
uh, former president of Mozambique, who stepped down peacefully. And he's observed that everybody knows who Robert Mugabe is, but no one knows who the better leaders in Africa are, like Chisano and Mohan. Yeah, uh, that, that, but it's also giving uh, a profile to good leadership, not just good leaders, but it tells you how important it is to have good leadership in Africa. For instance, this, the, the latest uh, report by the Growth Commission identified uh, various factors that uh, gave rise to countries growing at, I think, uh, uh, over 8% of GDP over a 20-year period. And it, the consistent pattern is good leadership uh, matters. Uh, leadership with that strategic vision uh, is, is what uh, seems to distinguish the, the fast-growing countries from the slower-growing countries. Um, and uh, so I think the other factor that, that uh, Mr. Ibrahim's award is doing is, is just putting the spotlight on leadership. And is it your sense that leadership in Africa is improving? Well, y yes, I would say just it depends on sort of what, how long the horizon you take. But I think, you know, we've had uh, 20 plus years of, of uh, fairly widespread democracy in, in Africa. We've had peaceful changes of government and even of party uh, in a large number of countries, um, in, including countries where you, previously there was a, a single leader um, uh, for a 20-year period or so, such as Zambia or uh, Cote d'Ivoire and so on. Uh, so there, I think uh, it's hard to, to it's maybe too soon to tell whether there's been a systematic uh, improvement in good leadership, but at least I, I'm getting the sense that the will of the people is being reflected in the leadership on a more regular and consistent basis in Africa than it, than it used to be. Let's turn now to an announcement of a free trade area in Africa. On the 22nd of October, heads of state and foreign ministers from the three largest African regional economic blocs agreed to work together towards establishing a free trade area, which, when complete, will extend from Cairo to Cape Town. The three blocs are SADC, the Southern African Development Community, COMESA, which is the common market for East and Southern Africa, and the EAC, which is the East African Community. I asked Sheila Page at the Overseas Development Institute to tell us what was agreed in Kampala. Uh, it's actually quite vague. They agreed to have a timeline for a roadmap. In other words, they agreed to start talks about talks, which is all you can really expect because a group of presidents aren't going to get into detailed discussions of tariff lines. It was interesting because it was more than they were expected to agree. And normally with summits like this, the communique is written in advance. Everyone knows what's going to be in it. And this, was, this came out of the meeting, as far as one can see. So let's just be clear. We're talking now about three of the regional economic communities, RECs, as they're called. And there are, what, eight different RECs in Africa? In, in Africa, or at least. Uh, uh, it depends which, how, how you count them. But what's interesting about these three is the overlap among them. Uh, members of COMESA are also, some members of COMESA are also members of SADC. All members of the EAC are also members of COMESA. And at least one of the members of the EAC used to be a member of SADC, Tanzania. 
So these are countries that have worked together within each of the groups and where the groups have had to be aware of each other and have had to coordinate with each other, uh, well, for 15 years. So each of these different groups has its own free trade area at the moment. And what they've agreed to do is come together into a combined free trade area for all 26 countries. Is that right? Uh, not so fast. Each of the three areas has plans for a free trade area within itself, with some exceptions and various delays and stagings. Each of them also has at least talks about going beyond that to a customs union, which means not only free trade, but the same tariffs on their trade with the rest of the world. Each of them already has some special provisions for trade with members of the others. So to some extent, what they're proposing is to make an extremely complicated system simpler. And is that an important thing to do? Is this, how big a step forward will it be if they succeed? It's a big step. What actually interested me more in their statement was that they talked about building trade infrastructure as well as reducing tariffs. And that could actually be much more important because for most of these countries, their maximum tariffs now are down to 20-25%. And on a lot of things, they're lower than that. Whereas the actual costs in terms of administrative requirements and having common standards and the rules for whether a lorry can cross a border or not, these add a lot more than 20% to the costs. And of course, poor roads, uh, poor airports add even more to the cost. So if they could get those costs down through a regional initiative, that actually would be extremely important. And are there any particular countries that will lose overall as a result of this? Or will, it, will every country contain some winners and some losers? Probably every country will have some winners and losers. In broad terms, it, this type of agreement is most important for landlocked countries, for countries that have to ship through a member of uh, even their own trade group, but uh, worse, one of the other trade groups, and therefore deal with two or three lots of customs and tariffs along the way. Was Kampala a big step forward, or was this just a, a political statement of intent that is unlikely to be followed up in practice? Well, I think it will be followed up, and I think it was a step forward, uh, because it wasn't something which the trade ministers had put in because you need to have something in a statement at the end of a summit. The presidents added it. Uh, they are asking for uh, action by the trade ministers. And I, I think what is, is puzzling is why it's happening now. Because it was a logical step at the time they were negotiating with the EU, but the EPA negotiations are over. Uh, it would have been a logical step to come together and have a common position in the Doha negotiations, but for practical purposes, those are over. So. It is, wasn't quite clear to me why they wanted to do it now, which in a sense makes it more likely that they are doing it seriously and for internal reasons, not just because of some external pressure. Sheila Page, thanks for joining us on Development Grounds. Shanta, this free trade area would encompass 26 countries with over 500 million people and an annual income of over $600 billion a year. But African leaders have been talking about building an African economic community, well, at least since the Treaty of Abuja back in 1991. How important do you think it is, this agreement that they've reached in Kampala? Well, it's an, it's an important step 
in the direction of uh, creating a free trade area. I mean, as, as Sheila Page herself said, this is an agreement to talk about talks. Um, and so we, got, we haven't yet seen the free trade agreement, but it's an important uh, step in that direction. But I think the, the more important issue for me is that uh, the benefits of a free trade area are, while they may be significant, actually pale in comparison to the benefits of regional cooperation in areas such as infrastructure and logistics. And what we find is that, you know, free trade areas, the, the pure trade benefits have to do with the lower tariffs and the common external tariffs of these countries. But as Sheila herself pointed out, these tariffs are already fairly low to begin with. So there might be some benefits in lowering them further um, and generating greater uh, synergies across these countries. Uh, but th there's still a real problem about uh, regional cooperation on, on uh, roads and rail railways. We're having trouble just getting a railway going, say, from Lusaka uh, to Dar uh, es Salaam uh, to be able to get some of these exports out. And quite often the problem is that, that the rail from Zambia has a very different grade than the rail from Tanzania, and trying to get these people to coordinate on those can be very difficult. The other big area is, is potential cooperation on energy. I mean, you have countries, or parts of countries, such as DR Congo, which have very rich energy sources. DR Congo has some, I forget the number, but some significant number of the hydropower resources of, of uh, Africa, uh, and yet, uh, the, the beneficiaries of this could be, or the purchasers of this could be all over the continent. Right. But we need to get an agreement about power lines, grid lines, and, and uh, pricing of infrastructure. So I think the big ticket item is infrastructure cooperation and regional economic communities of infrastructure. Uh, and to the extent that a free trade agreement could, could facilitate regional cooperation and in infrastructure, I think that could be a big benefit. So you're in the camp uh, with, I, I guess, most people who know a lot about this, which in, includes uh, Sheila as well, that says that it really isn't the tariffs and quotas and uh, subsidies that prevent uh, the poorest countries from uh, trading either with each other or with the rich world, but problems of infrastructure, of standards, of... Uh, so it's behind, it's behind the border obstacles that most need to be overcome if countries are going to trade their way out of poverty? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in that camp, just because I observe what's going on. I mean, these African countries have been lowering tariffs um, and quotas, um, and yet trade really hasn't taken off. In fact, Africa's share of world trade is actually lower now than it was 20 years ago. Um, so, uh, and then you look at what what really is going on, and you talk to people, and you realize that it takes eight days to clear a shipment out of uh, Dar es Salaam, or 11 days to clear a shipment out of Mombasa port, um, and, uh, and then there are huge, very lucrative ports, like uh, the port of Lome in Togo, that are completely underutilized. Uh, because of uh, poor governance problems in, those, uh, in, in, the, in the management of the port. These are the big, big ticket items that we're missing, that we're lacking in Africa. Uh, and so I, I, I mean, again, I turn this around into an optimistic view, that if we can fix those problems, the uh, potential for Africa is limitless.
What an excellent note to end our discussion on. That's all for this week's edition of Development Drums. Thank you to Chanta Devarajan. You've been very optimistic and upbeat about Africa's prospects. Uh, you can read uh, Chanta's blog about Africa at africacan.worldbank.org and to Sheila Page of the Overseas Development Institute at www.odi.org.uk. You can find those links and links to everything we've talked about today at developmentdrums.org. Please go there and tell us what you think about today's show. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.